0: Hello, and welcome back to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur podcast. Now, I have got a real treat for you today. I've spoken over the years to lots of founders, to owners, entrepreneurs, but I don't think I've ever met anyone with quite the level of experience as today's guest, Bob Norton. Bob is a serial founder, and he's created several startups. He's also grown business divisions of some global multinational companies. He's raised capital from angel investors, from VCs, and he's experienced a huge amount of success over the years, but also some notable failures, or at least times when things didn't work out quite as he'd planned. And that, I think, is where some of the most important business lessons are learned. As a result of Bob's four decades plus of life at the coalface of entrepreneurship, he's created a complete library of valuable content from ebooks to video courses, much of which he's generously shared with us in the Bulletproof Entrepreneur community. During our conversation, Bob explains the vital importance of having a clearly articulated vision for your company and what the 11 elements of a successful vision are that make up what he calls the vision pie. We also talk about some of the main reasons that startups fail The most important reason actually accounts for 42% of all failures. He also explains what you need to do to avoid being one of those failure statistics. And also, when the data confirms that, I was surprised about this, but only one in 400 companies ever receives, ever secures funding, Bob shares his evidence-based reasons and importantly teaches you how to ensure that you are one of the companies that does get funded and breaking news it's not all about your pitch deck. And as we get to the end of our conversation, Bob explains why he believes that entrepreneurship is a noble pursuit that drives so much of what society needs and why you should be proud to be a part of this community. Now, just before we dive into this ideas-packed conversation, I just want to share a couple of the recent five-star reviews that we've had on the Apple podcast uh, platform. So we're now up to 94 five-star reviews. As you can imagine, I'm quite keen to get to the Magic 100. Um, The last couple, let me just read a couple for you. This one is from Sharon Sutton. Sharon's a friend. She's also a fellow podcaster. Sharon, based in the Isle of Man, runs her own podcast out there. So so getting some feedback from a fellow podcaster is always uh, appreciated. Uh, The heading is Excellent Show. And she says, well done, Alan, on bringing the important questions on everyone's mind to this forum. Any business owner will take numerous gems and insights from this series with his masterly interviewing style, gleaning generous contributions from his guests. I'm not sure about that, but I do appreciate the warm and positive feedback, Sharon. Thank you so much. And the other one that I'll read out this time is from Marianne. B-S-G, Marianne B-S-G, heading amazing content. Well done, Alan. The subjects that you bring to your podcast are always relevant and inspiring. Keep up the good work. You know, thank you so much. I really appreciate anyone who takes a few minutes just to give me a a review. And if if you've ever had any ideas or insights from the conversations I've had on the pod, I'd really appreciate if you could just take a second to go to the Apple podcast platform and leave me a five-star review and perhaps a few positive words. It really does mean a lot to me. And of course, do make sure that you subscribe to the podcast, as that helps widen the network and helps us to spread the word. Thank you so much. And now, without further ado, all the way from the USA, I give you Mr. Bob Norton. This is Alan Smith, and you're welcome to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur podcast. If you're looking for ideas and inspiration to guide you on your business and personal journey, then you, my friend, come to the right place. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Bob Norton. How are you?
1: Very good. Thank you. Good afternoon there. And and it's morning here in the U.S.
0: Well, indeed, I was going to say you're not local to me. So where exactly are you speaking to us from, Bob?
1: I am in Temple, Texas, which is between Austin and Dallas, Texas.
0: Nice. I'd imagine your weather right now is probably a bit better than we've got it right now. Sun is shining.
1: If you don't mind the heat. Yeah, it's been 80s here for a while. But when I first moved to Texas, the first first year here, it was 100 degrees for 30 days in a row. I couldn't believe it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Thank God for air conditioning is all I can say. Um, Bob, you have got, if I may say so, one of the most comprehensive and interesting resumes that I think I've e- e- ever read uh, for for a, for a business owner, for an entrepreneur. I'm just going to read a couple of uh, two or three of the headlines. So Mr. Norton has been a serial entrepreneur and had a 100% launch success rate of his companies, returning over $1 billion to his investors. Founded six companies, sold four and still running two and helped hundreds launch and scale uh, as an advisor and a CEO coach. Grew two startups to $100 million and $156 million in sales in five years and three years, respectively. And not done with all that, also author of four books, including the Startup Manual and Leadership, co-authored with Dr. Warren Bennis, the father of leadership. You packed a hell of a lot in. If I may say so,
1: I like to stay busy, and I, I like constantly learning and, and taking on new challenges, especially if people think they can 't be done
0: <laughs> fantastic so with that in mind, um, and for those people who who, who don 't know you and certainly the, you know, this side of the pond are not aware of your success and you, and your work let 's go back to the beginning. Uh, I always love to start the kind of the, the, the or, origin story of the entrepreneur journey so. Tell me about your early days sort of growing up. When did you first get bitten by the entrepreneur bug?
1: Well, my father was an entrepreneur as well. And so I think it was in the blood. Um, I had four businesses before I left high school. Um, You know, the typical stuff kids do, snow shoveling. And, you know, my dad lent me the money for a lawnmower that I had to pay for that. And you know, that sort of thing. And then um, junior year in high school, I started a direct mail order business for ham radio operators, where we, you know, bought the antenna wire by the pound and and sliced it to the right size and put it together and sent it out mail order. So, you know, I was running that small business with a friend for uh, a few years uh, before I left high school. And I was always very much a tech nerd before it was cool. Um, I, I like to brag that I used more computer time than all of my class of 350 people, uh, the year I got into computer programming. So I started my career as a software engineer and a a techie.
0: Right. Really interesting. So were you, work? did, did you, did you work when you first sort of left, left school, left college? Did you immediately start uh, operating for yourself or were you working in business elsewhere? Yeah, no, I don't recommend
1: anyone, you know, goes right in and operates for themselves because they won't have that learning journey from mentors and and, and that sort of thing. My first job was as a software engineer. I was programming on the Apple computer and I was lucky in that, you know, that was all new stuff. And so it was easy for me to become a top expert compared to everyone else in a couple of years. I wound up editing a book on the Apple IIe computer for Addison Wesley, rewriting the operating system, which gave us a, a competitive edge in terms of 25% more memory. Back in those old days, you know, you had 45K mm. of memory, not 45 meg or 45 gig,
0: 45 <laughs> yeah, yeah, of
1: memory, and uh, every every byte counted. So I I did a lot of systems and technical work to go inside the computers and that quickly moved me from a regular programmer into being really a, a systems engineer. And and to this day I use that engineering and design mindset quite a bit in the creation mm. of of my products. I try to do a lot of how to stuff and, and consulting, not just coaching, um, but I, you know, that, that was for ISI Systems, which was a, a company that did data processing for the insurance industry, boring as heck, but since I was working on, on all the um, internal system stuff like security and portfolio management and stuff like that, I really cut my teeth in becoming you know, sort of a super techie. I, I wound up doing technical support for Grumman Aerospace. On the Apple computer, because I was probably one of the top people understanding the insides of the Apple IIe. We're talking about you know the early nineteen eighties now, so mm. uh, I've got a lot of miles on my chassis, and probably better. We we go to something more recent. Do you want me to <laughs>
0: take? Yeah,
1: you? yeah no, no. I mean, I I had eight I, years I, as a technologist.
0: Eight eight years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So a, a couple of points just spring to mind there. Um, you clearly were marked out for success. You became an expert. You became highly valuable to your employer. So it sounds like, you know, you, you went through, you got promoted, you got additional jobs, which I think is a lesson just right, right there and then, uh, which is to kind of go the extra mile whilst you're working for another organization when you've got a sort of hierarchy and a boss. Just become an expert in what you are supposed to be doing as opposed to simply showing up and picking up a paycheck.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I'm the kind of guy that loves to learn. And so I literally started at the top left of the bookshelf and read everything in it down to the bottom right of the bookshelf. And that took a year or two. But because microcomputers were so new, I quickly became, you know, a leading expert because there wasn't anyone working on this stuff for five or 10 or 20 years, you know?
0: Right, right. Okay so you're there for 8 years you're learning your craft you become known as an expert what happened next
1: Um well I went to my second company which was developing on some of the very first laptop computers uh software for mobile sales forces called uh you know Salesforce automation SFA which today you know people would recognize as as uh, all of the the sales uh, tools that people use on the road, but very new then because laptops were obviously, you know, about a million times slower, literally, and and clunkier and bigger. And we developed um, a very complex system using Unix host computers for salespeople to do inventory management and ordering and inquiry and email and all that sort of stuff. Again, we're still in the in the 1980s, so I should probably fly by that. Then I went to what was probably my best product development experience and the end of my technology career. I wound up uh, being vice president of of engineering. I started as director of software, quickly became vice president of engineering, and and we were acquired by Thompson, which is now Thompson Reuters, and Mm -hmm. had a three-year contract to continue to develop products. There I launched five products in five years, and really ran the Skunk Works, and unlike today, I wore a lot more hats than is typical today. I was product manager, I was VP of engineering, I was, you know, the the project manager, and, and oversaw. You know, at the end, it was about 60 engineers. When I when I started, it was only a few engineers. So that's where I picked up my first management experience, really running big teams and learning about the mythical man month and, you know, how to enhance productivity. Uh, We had about 11 times the industry average productivity in my teams because we spent a lot of time on building systems that made the programmers better and reusing tools and developing things in layers and re-entering code that was, you know, fairly new and cutting edge back then. Again, now we're in the late 80s.
0: Mm. Okay, so you've packed in quite a lot already in those relatively few number of years. So, when did, you, did the first uh, sort of situation happen when you sort of founded your own company, or when did you, yeah, when did you sort of your personal kind of entrepreneurial journey really, really begin?
1: Well, I made a chunk of money exiting Thompson because we sold the company and then had a three-year earnout which you know gave right. us bonus incentives to continue the rapid growth we were doing. And that's the one you referenced earlier, where we hit, we had five products, and we had about 100 million in five years on that journey. Yeah. I took that money and, and um, took a little time off. And then I founded HomeView, which was the first high definition virtual touring company for residential real estate. And the first time I had the uh, the CEO seat and the, the burden and privilege of, of being a founder, and I put a lot of my own money in to uh, bootstrap that company and develop the product over a year and, and, and build the team. And then we wound up, uh, after an angel financing round, getting um, a $34 million strategic investment from IBM, which allowed us to expand that business.
0: Okay now so let's just go go back to that where did the spark of an idea come from cuz home home view i mean often people entrepreneurs start businesses because They are working in a particular sector and they feel they could do it better than they currently are. But this sounds like, albeit it's it's tech enabled, but it sounds like a a departure from where you'd previously been. Yeah, it was
1: definitely, I mean, multimedia was big at the time. And of course, as I said, Mm. computers were, you know, literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of times slower But I don't know how it was in the UK back then in the early 90s, but we had MLS books that literally had a one by one inch black and white picture of a home, literally black and white, not even grayscale, right? And it was the ugliest thing in the world. And my father had been in real estate. He had owned a commercial and residential real estate company. So that gave me some knowledge of the industry from from a distance, right? But... I thought it was very ironic that you could pick up a, a catalog of pens in, at Staples, one of our chains here, and see nice color pictures on pens. But when you were spending $250,000, dollars 400000 on a home, you know, you couldn't even get one single color picture. And the wasted time and effort in going to looking at homes was was massive. I forget all the numbers, but I think... I think we made it, um, the average person visited 43 homes, if you can imagine all that driving back then, before they purchased one. And our average person, I think, had to go to six or seven homes, but they probably saw many hundreds with a virtual tour. So the obviousness of that, which was prevented by the financial structure of the real estate industry... And the broker-owner is not really wanting to invest in technology because they'd give someone a desk and a phone and they'd get 50% of the commission. And so there wasn't an incentive for the industry to make the industry better. And we took advantage of that. We actually did a, a, a very different business model where we only worked with buyers. They would come into our office because we didn't have the communications bandwidth back then, although we would have obviously moved it out to the Internet over time. But we would service only the buyer and we would give the seller broker a 60% split instead of a 50% split. And as a result of that economic advantage of a better commission and, you know, a 20% close rate on showing instead of, you know, a 5% close rate on showings, we penetrated 78% of the market in the very first year we launched this in the Boston metropolitan area and and, uh, paid to get 20,000 homes into the database um, so that the buyer experience was, you know, oh gosh, 10 times better than what they would do looking at an MLS book and being dragged around. And of course, be subject to the whims of the broker who often has different motivations because they want to sell their internal listings first because they get double the commission on those versus the MLS listings. And, and and of course, they specialized and only knew well certain, you know, a few towns, whereas we could look at, you know, if there were 400 towns, I think was the number in Massachusetts, and we could step back and allow the user to have such a better experience to figure out where to look instead of having to go look mm. everywhere to make the trade-off. So I'm sure the same is true in, in the UK, that sort of the father you yeah. get out of the city the better the value of the home and the more space you get, et cetera, et cetera. So sure. it was compelling in many ways to the buyer. And having done five product launches at that time just at Thomson Reuters, you know, I, was, I did my own market research and competitive intelligence and sort of had that broad view of how this was totally disruptive to the real estate industry.
0: Yeah, just a couple of points of clarification. Uh, MLS, what is that exactly?
1: Oh, that stands for Multiple Listing Service, and it's right, a okay. regional database of all of the homes. At the time, it was all text, and, and you had to get the printed book to get that one ugly picture.
0: Right, okay, and so... Again, really interesting how anyone has the first spark of an idea to start a business. You just had personal. It sounds like you had personal experience. Your father was in that sector, so you, I guess, you grew up and you knew about it, and you had yeah, and, and conversations I mean, at home and, for
1: a home myself.
0: Well, that's exactly. That's what I mean, too. Yeah. Often that, that's the way, isn't it? A lot of entrepreneurs start because they have a poor experience yeah. or one thing or another, and they think, my God, why doesn't someone else do this better? And you look around, you find, well, no one's doing it better. You think, surely someone else is doing this, and the answer is no. And when the answer there is no, for an entrepreneur like you, Bob, you, you have no choice but to do it yourself, which is, I guess, what you did.
1: Yeah, and so, I think my father being in the business, I understood the economic limitations right. of the industry that allowed me to sort of instantly come up with a business model that leveraged the disruptive technology of, you know, multimedia imaging tours.
0: And so, what it's like, a, what we call now, it's a, it's a film, it's a, you, a, a video of the home. Is that what it, it, was? it wasn't video Maybe. at the
1: time? We started with eight uh, or nine pictures, but they were very high right. quality and. We actually had some very patentable technology and pushed the state of the art right. in terms of tricking the human eye and the optic nerve to seeing a better picture than was actually there. Because, you know, we, we would have, you know, oh, gosh, probably the space. Our, I think our first server was five gigabytes of space. And that was 20,000 homes, you know, and, right. and that might be one, you know, five homes today given the advances in storage and processing power and speed and everything. And, and, and so you can have so much more information instantly conveyed.
0: Right. Okay. And how do you say, how did you get, the, in terms of getting started, get off the ground, you, you put some of your own money into it. Yes. You got the whole thing set up and and then what and then then you saw outside investors as you grew
1: yeah exactly we did a, i think it was a right. one million or 1.1 $1. $1 million dollar angel round after my investment i had personally put in about six or seven hundred thousand dollars plus my right. own time of course for a yep. year or you know maybe clo- almost two years in in the development and R and D process because we were pushing the boundaries of computers at that time And so we had three of us, you know, working on the product development for almost two years as we, you know, got ready to launch the business in stealth mode.
0: I'm always interested, really, and and part of the premise of this podcast is, on on one hand, we talk about, you know, the numbers, the facts, the, you know, capital raising and business exits. But I'm always intrigued by the human journey, you know, the, the human, the person the human being behind it or what were you, because it's anyone who starts their own business and walks away from, you know, a paycheck, you're, you're working in a, you know, it sounds like an a senior position, in an executive position, a good job with pre- presumably, uh, you know, a healthy paycheck as well. And you, you follow that kind of, that established entrepreneurial path, which means you give all that up to make, to involve to yourself in your first startup. And of course, there's inherent risk attached to that. You know, regardless of how good the idea is, the odds are stacked against you. You know, most startups fail, as you know. Um, what were your circumstances at the time? Were you – you ha- did, did you have children or were you sort of by yourself? No, I, you say, I, I was sort of, single. What was that sort of risk? Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I was okay. single, and so I was able to work the 60, 70, and maybe occasionally 80-hour weeks that were necessary to be a founder. Right and a CEO. I mean, I always recommend that no one start a business unless they've got six months worth of personal expenses. I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about a freelancing business and selling your time, but, you know, really developing something that's big and has the opportunity to grow into a substantial entrepreneurial venture. Um, To me, it was preordained. I mean, I knew when I signed my three-year contract with Thomson Reuters, but as soon as that contract was over, I'd be founding a business, I didn't know what. And obviously in the right. last year, I was looking for that opportunity and I did come up with the idea. And it had a lot of parallels with what we were doing at Thompson, but probably be too time consuming to go into how the, the strategies were parallel in one sentence. Mm. You know, we were bringing together a group of competitors as a third party And doing something, sort of acting as the industry's R&D arm, where they weren't as concerned about us being directly competitive. And so they could trust us, unlike their competitors, to be a third party um, and fair with the industry.
0: Yeah, and just, I, it's not an area I know, but I can I can understand immediately, you've got a kind of a use case, if you like, in terms of the economics of it, but also understanding the sort of the nuances of the industry, of the profession, and how you've described real estate agents over there, and how they got compensated, and the, and the commission's fee split, and things like that, so you understood, because you needed to have people who, to, who who adopted this system, because you have the best system in the world, but if it's not in their interests, then they're gonna not, not going to be, they're not going to do it. So you work out a a commission split that's helpful and better than they can get elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And and
1: I'm really big on market research and competitive intelligence. I went and got my real estate license. I went out and got interviewed by real estate companies, seriously thinking that, well, I might want to, you know, do real estate year, you know, sales for a year or six months, you know, not obviously as a long term thing, but just to deeply understand the business. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's, ridiculous to kind of dive into an industry without really understanding deeply the industry, the personalities, the motivations. When I was working at Thompson, you know, I used to hop on a plane at 5.30 a.m., arrive in New York, you know, and have breakfast with someone at 7 a.m., and then I would live in the trading room looking over all my customers' soul, you know, what their workflow was, what they were doing every day and that's what i meant when i said i wore the product manager hat right yeah today that's normally a separate position but i think the technology people really need to be embedded in understanding that customer experience as as we call it today you know
0: yeah and so i mean great advice right there which is if you are going to embark upon you know a business venture do as much as you can for to do the research analysis and kind of you know, get into the trenches of what it's really like. Certainly if it's not an industry that you've got a lot of experience in the past, then you know, do, do what you did. It's not something to be taken lightly and think, I think this will make it work. Almost every industry, certainly anything I know about... There's a superficial understanding of it, but you've got to live it and breathe it for a while to really get the, the nuances and the differences and and things that you prefer to, like compensation models, they're very, very important. You know, incentives drive human behavior at the end of the day. so
1: absolutely. It, it, it made sense. One of the free ebooks that uh, that we're going to offer and attach yeah. to this is an yeah. analysis of research from CB Insights on the top twenty reasons startups fail. And that data shows 43% of startups fail because there's no need for the product. Now, To me, there's no excuse for that. You should have known that before you invested your money and a year of your time figuring it out. And, And to me, that's taking stealth mode too far because you have to interact with your customer as you're building the product. You have to... You know, drop the robe and show them what it's gonna be and really validate that product in the market. The last thing you wanna do is go off and you know, in your corner office or, or your garage and build a product without talking to prospects. Very important.
0: Yeah, and yet so many do, unfortunately. And we'll, we'll certainly come back to this. And I really want to unpack some of those. Probably not every single one of them, but some of the sort of you know the key lessons that you've learned and, and that come out in your in your writings and your education. Now, when you uh, started Home View, did you were you building it to sell or exit from day one? Was there a plan to say we're going to run this for X number of years? I'm going to sell out, or was it? Not quite as calculated.
1: Um, No, I expected that we would IPO it because it was a consumer brand and and consumer brands have an advantage in the public market. Of course, if you watch the data, you know, it's getting harder and harder to IPO and more companies are sold out with mergers and acquisitions. But, you know, Mm. it didn't matter to me what that exit was. And and I think that's often driven by the by the investors. You know, they want to know they'll have a way to get out. But you've got to focus as the entrepreneur on building value and building barriers to entry around the business that are sustainable. Um, I still think that venture capitalists have a very poor understanding of some of these things because they've never been CEOs and they can't model in their mind, if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink and Neuroplasticity, You know, five years of experience or, you know, 10, 20,000 hours of practice literally creates a supercomputer in your mind to do something. And I've got a few of those supercomputers in my mind after 40 years of my journey. You know, one of them's on strategy. One of them's on product development. One of them's on management science and leadership. One of them's on scaling businesses. And so... I have built that asset, and there's no way to reproduce that, even with AI, because all of the hype around AI, that's what people already know. By definition, it's not going to push the boundaries and the state of the art in discovering new things, because what you're looking at is a database of sentences,
0: Well, absolutely right, and, and and I completely agree with you, and that's what the VCs are looking at as well: database of sentences and spreadsheets well, based on the past. They're
1: doing a checklist, and you know, I have this model in my CEO boot camp called the Vision Pie, which is the eleven elements of a successful vision. And people don't understand fully the term vision, and the media, of course, the reporters don't know it. I mean, I've had as many as seventeen errors in one media interview because they don't have context, and they don't have deep understanding, and they're assigned a story, and they do an interview, and they, and they do a report, and there's always misunderstandings in that, and of course they don't necessarily mm. run that by you. So I think understanding a vision as a very comprehensive, holistic view of what the company should look like three and five years out is, is critical. I mean, you you may have that the BHAG, if you heard a big, hairy, audacious yeah. goal, you know, of where you're gonna be in 20 years because the industry is moving that way and you need that as a filter too, but you really have to have a picture in your mind of marketing, sales, operations, finance, and product development. A lot of people consider a vision what the product looks like, and maybe who they sell it to, what's the target market and the niche. But a real vision to be validated and to get rid of that 85% failure rate in startups has to have all of those five disciplines and has to make sure their strategy will dovetail and work together. And I think that's why a lot of investors fail, because they can't model what is doable in the real world. Can I hire a salespeople, a person rather, for X dollars to sell this? I mean, that's a common problem. And the the CEO and founder can sell the product, but they don't know how to hire salespeople, train them, and get them to sell the product because they're obviously coming from a whole different angle and background and experience.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, let's spend a couple more moments on on this because I think it's really important to to the audience. So the idea of a vision, everyone knows... well, the concept of a vision, but it sounds like you're going into a a much deeper level. So, I mean, what in in simplistic terms, what should a founder, business owner do to maximize or embrace the sort of things that you're talking about uh, such that they can, you know, minimize the chance of failure, maximize the chance of success in terms of incorporating a vision? What, what are the sort of key action points they should consider?
1: Yeah, and, and maybe we can attach my vision pie image because it's, it's yeah, a complex concept. But to put it in as simple terms as possible, the center of the pie is a circle that I call the core. <clears throat> and, and that is, what's the, pro, it's a, what's the problem you solve? What's your Why? what can you invest in that you know will create value in the world that's not going to change? You know, if you ask Jeff Bezos about that, it's people want faster delivery, lower prices, and more selection. And that's never going to change. So anything that he invests in in infrastructure at at Amazon, is is going to get a payoff eventually because it's not going to change no one's going to come up five years later and say i want it slower for more money and less selection right Um, so that core that you know is not going to change which is part of the long-term vision to be certain you're solving hopefully an expensive problem is very important so you know with elon musk that was you know, the, the greening of, you know, our carbon footprint and all of that with the EV. Um, I do a case study because Elon uses the exact same market entry strategy that I have always used before he was doing that in terms of multiple steps into the market and broadening the market, starting with the Roadster and then moving to the Model S and then, move you know, adding to broaden the market in a portfolio of niches. So that core is the most important thing. And in the example of HomeView, that was let's give the buyer a better experience to look more broadly and find a better house. You know, again, that's never gonna change. People wanna spend less time, find a better house and and a, a better value, right? That was never gonna change. So any of the money that I took, seed money out of my own pocket, I knew I was creating something valuable not and not going to be in that 43% that fail because there's no product need. The concentric circles in this vision pie that, that I hope the listeners can see and download is sales, marketing, finance, product development, and operations, those five areas of the business. And Peter Drucker, the father of management, used to say that a business only has two jobs, innovation and marketing. And I agree with them, not because the other things don't need to be done, but because the other things are relatively standard and easy. And most of the creativity and disruption and barriers to entry are going to come from your marketing and positioning and your innovation of what you're able to do that other people can't do. But you've got to be able to also get it financed. So you need a finance strategy. Ninety percent of the angel pitches as an angel investor that I see The founder doesn't address what the sustainable competitive advantage is going to be. And Mm. they might see what it is today, but they don't know that that's still going to exist three years and five years down the line when the investor wants to exit. And guess what? That's the difference between a price-to-earnings multiple in the business of five versus up to 100. So all of your value is a function of your sustainability which means the barriers to entry around the business and your ability to potentially change or improve that. Of course, continuous innovation, as, as Elon Musk will say, you know, is one of the only ways long term to maintain competitive advantage. But most often there's a, a predictable stepwise process and you should be developing in stealth the next generation when your competitors are copying you and, and be ready to, you know, as they say, it's a terrible expression, but eat your own children, right? You got to be able to replace your <laughs> own product with the yeah. next generation before your competitors do.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And look we will definitely be posting a link to the vision pie in the show notes and, uh, sounds really, really interesting. Something that hasn't been explored as much as perhaps it should be. Now, there's a couple of ways we can take this conversation. I'm absolutely gonna loop back and I really wanna unpack some of the insights you've learned from you know several decades of being an entrepreneur, being a founder, growing businesses, exiting businesses. But let's continue the dialogue around. So how how long did Homeview, how long were you there as a founder and what was the what was the exit? It
1: like? was five years. As I said, we got a $34 million financing from IBM. That allowed us to expand to multiple offices and prove out the model. Um, also, the, but the, the CEO, I mean, we had difficulties because of the financing with a, um, a big corporation. IBM started having problems, changed their CEO, and they shut down their venture capital arm, which was called Fireworks Partners at the time. Smart people, mm-hmm. but not terribly experienced in venture capital either. And then the Gulf War started in the early 90s, and literally there was zero venture capital investment in all of northeastern, you know, um, we call it New England, (laughs) all of those states, literally zero investment for a quarter or two because of the Gulf War, because everyone was stepping back. And they were taking their money, and everyone was desperate for capital, so they were moving up the food chain. They weren't investing in startups, they were investing in other companies. So that made, it, mm-hmm. that, that made our exit much more difficult and much less profitable for me because Homeview was a capital intensive business. We needed that $35, $40 million to open the first five or 10 markets, and then it would naturally become sort of a, a monopoly or a dualopoly where obviously the brokers didn't want to have the homes photographed multiple times and pay the cost of that. And and so there's this natural tendency towards one or two uh, competitive players in the business.
0: Yeah. Okay, so five years in, IBM stopped funding you. Yeah. And then so... How did you sell? Were you approached or you decided it's time for me to exit? Well,
1: we when we got, as well as I think 120 other companies, got the same letter on the same day from IBM saying, we're not doing this venture capital thing anymore, right? They brought in a guy <laughs> yeah. by the name of – his nickname was Chainsaw Al, <laughs> and, and he <laughs> cut, cut the $10 billion off the expenses of IBM. So it was an easy decision yeah. and a thoughtless decision. You know, their problem was bigger yeah. than ours to just stop doing that. So we had very short warning. I think it was like six weeks. We were expecting an $11 million check from IBM, and we got a letter saying that's not coming. And, of course, we're, we're operating. So we wound up and having to throw out a big net and look for new investors. We wound up bringing in a bridge round from some smaller investors um, to stay alive, and we wound up then selling out to the Prudential real estate organization and oh, i right. i remained on the board that was a five-year run that i was there and then i was on the board for another year they wanted to change the model which i knew was a mistake but you know they bought the company control and they could do whatever they wanted at that point and they took followed a path of trying to franchise the home view business and they didn't mm-hmm. do too well at that because the the dynamics of the competitiveness of the industry and the pricing structure that they were changing was a very important part of the model. So you had investors coming in that really didn't have the vision and the understanding of the market saying, well, let's just do it this way, even though we had already proven the the success of the more capital-intensive model, which would have made it probably a national monopoly. I was literally at the Dallas... um, convention of the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, and at the very first meeting where there's 2,000 brokers in the room, and I I came in, I swear everyone was talking about HomeView, because we had just been invested in by IBM. The the industry was scared of us for a number of reasons that we don't have the time to get into, because we're a buyer's broker, someone representing the fiduciary interest of the buyer was new at that time. Everyone wanted to get the the listing in the contract because that was guaranteed revenue. And the less sophisticated and experienced brokers generally chauffeured around the buyers because there wasn't as much value added there. So I didn't have the exit I wish I had. My net worth had gone way up on paper, as is the case. And, and those always don't yeah. turn into an exit and a sale. Um, I got some money out of it, but nowhere near what my net worth was yeah. a couple of years earlier when IBM did the investment. And, you know, I moved on and I wound up going to another company that was 8 Plus America, which was trying to solve what we called in the U.S. the digital divide, which was that the, the wealthy schools had computers and the you know the middle class and lower class schools didn't. And you know, being a technologist, I understood the value of computers and software and education of the teachers to um, allow children to learn at their own pace on a computer. You know, having had a built a computer, you know, when I was in high school, I was a ham radio operator and a software tech nerd, and so I had built computers. And so that that was a sort of it had one arm that was a nonprofit and another arm that was a for profit. But the idea was to raise. You know, tens of millions of dollars for schools to get more computers and software and teacher training to take advantage of you know, the massive run-up in, uh, in microcomputers and what they could do in the classroom. And I spent five years doing that. We signed up 22,000 schools, I think it was. Sold that to a competitor who had spent about ten times as much as we did getting a similar number of schools. So they had a lot more capital, and it was it was a good exit. I wanted to do other things with that business, and the the investors were older, and they were looking to farm and harvest their investment as opposed to, you know, what I wanted to do was take it to other markets and and take the core we had built, and use it in you know in ten or twenty industries instead of one, which obviously would have greatly upped the value of the business. But since they didn't want to do that. I went on to uh, my next company, and I was hired by a, an incubator and a venture capital company to come in and do a restart uh, on a company um, called Blue Ripple, which was sort of at the beginning of the Internet. Um, I literally started there three months before 9-11 when the towers in New York were hit, which shut down the capital markets again. So it was sort of a repeat of what had happened in the Gulf War for me. So You know, had this great opportunity. I knew it was going to work. You know, we, we they had invested $5 million in it, but they didn't have a CEO, which is a silly mistake for venture capitalists to make, really. You know, and nowadays you can get a fractional CEO, and everyone should be doing that because of the Pareto principle, right? You can get 80% of the value for 20% of the time, and, and launching a business without having an experienced CEO in the mix is, you know, is suicide, in, in my view. Um, there are very few instances, um, and I'm not aware of any big ones, where, you know, if you don't have some gray hair on the team, or in my case, some bald head, you know, you're probably <laughs> not going to be very successful because you're going to repeat the mistakes. That, that so many of us have made. Um, you know, like I said, that ebook we're offering to your audience, that has the 20 top reasons that companies fail, and many of them are very avoidable. That's why we see this 85% failure rate in startups. Um, and then only one in 400 companies will become a $10 million company, and only one in 6,300 companies will become a $100 million company. So it actually gets harder to to scale a company than it is to launch a company by a factor of about 1200.
0: Yes, quite incredible. And you, you you've had such a rich experience, lots of different you know you've 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 been part of a startup, you've been you've joined other companies, and you've helped scale them, you've had exits. There are multiple different things. And I'm, just, I'm allowing you to pause for breath there. I'm just checking my, my notes. A number of real big lessons there. Number one, there are no guarantees. The things that happened entirely beyond your control, whether it's 9-11, Gulf War, or any number of other things. So all the best plans, as we say, can sometimes just be, be, be thwarted and be challenged. So you yeah. know, kind of always have a plan, plan B, perhaps. If there's a heart, you're going to get wet. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly right. Um, another one, and again, unfortunately, this is quite a common occurrence. Which is, big corporates who acquire, in your case, Prudential Real Estate, they seem to mess it up more times than than, than they don't mess it up. They said there's a seems to be big corporate mentality. They seem to know best, and that that original entrepreneurial spirit gets launched, gets lost, I should say. Somewhere along the way, because they, they seem they know better. We're bigger than you guys are. We, like we'll take it from here. And as I say, I've seen so many instances, in, and in my industry as well, They're where the new, the, they 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 mess it up. And and the last point for uh, for now was where you've got co-investors, just trying as best you can to be on the same page in terms of what the the, the, the desirable outcome is. Your your co-investors in this last operation, um, they were older, they just, they, they wanted to sort of milk the cows that were where you had much more grander ambitions to do. And that's a challenge as well. So to the degree to which you can control it, I think understand early on all the, the sort of the, the, the co-investors, the people who are involved in significant decisions ought to agree as much as possible what a desirable outcome looks sure, like.
1: alignment yeah. is so important. And you know, corporations are doing this for a strategic reason. You know, IBM was in the hardware business. They had screwed up a lot of businesses by buying them and then only doing things that sold more big iron, as we used to call it, the mainframes, right? We're looping back to that with the cloud, but it's stacks of PCs instead of, you know, instead of mainframes. And that was their motivation um, that that screwed up a lot of companies that were, quote, strategic investments. Um, Timing is so important. You probably heard the expression, I'd rather be lucky than smart. Because those macro factors can kill companies, you know, for no fault of the entrepreneur. And that's why the core we talked about is so important. If you created real value, you could potentially put that on the shelf and monetize it in many other ways by changing your business model. You know, when the Internet came along, HomeView could have been... You know, obviously remote viewing, which was inevitable, and we knew it was inevitable and a next step in things, and we designed everything for that on day one.
0: Right, and so therefore getting this back to the importance of the vision pie and the vision in particular, because once you've got the vision right and you know why you exist, then if circumstances change, you've got a better chance of being able to pivot, I guess, and sort of change the dynamics I mean, as as you say, that the buzzword right now is AI, and everyone's talking about AI, and it will absolutely will disrupt a lot of businesses. There's no doubt about that. But the the smart ones with a clear vision who do bring something to the world, who do exist for a purpose, they'll probably be they'll be better with AI than they will be threatened or disrupted by it. Yes, every imagine.
1: dollar of R and D you invest. Should go to something that creates value and could have many different business models or target markets yeah. or distribution strategies around it
0: right bob let 's with, with with all this these years of, of rich experience um, which is just fabulous you 've obviously you 've learned a lot you're author of you know several books and you you run courses. We won't have time to, to, to go into everything in detail, but let me pick a couple of key subjects which will be just really relevant for, for the audience here. First one is, and we talked about the failure rate in businesses and the research that you've uncovered, which suggests, well, you talk about the, the, the 20 reasons, 20 main reasons that entrepreneurs fail, and you've got ideas as to how to avoid them. Well, we, we won't go through all 20, but... What are the top sort of two or three? What are the ones that happen most often? And how can entrepreneurs best avoid them, avoid these failure points?
1: Well, I mean, the short answer is a little self-promotional, and that is my CEO boot camp addresses 18 of those 20. We've already touched on a couple of the most common ones, the 43% of no market need. Um, the lack of founder experience is huge. I would recommend that if you're starting your first startup, get another founder who has complementary experience. Your odds of success go up a lot. That said, disagreement among the founders is also a common killer of businesses, right? So you've got to have a prenup. You've got to have trust. Ideally, you should have uh, know that person really well. And make sure they're complementary skills, that you're not bringing the both same skills. I mean, if you look at Apple with Wozniak and Jobs and Hewitt Packard and some of the biggest successes, those people were enormously different. I mean, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs were opposite people in personalities. And there's a great personality model that's in uh, Mark Victor Hansen's book, The One Minute Millionaire, called HOTS which is about hiring four personality types early on. It's my favorite model for the first few hires of a startup. It's the HOT stands for hare, owl, tortoise, and squirrel. And they're representative personalities that you need to balance each other out in the early days. And so it's a, it's a dimension or a way to look at getting the right first four or, or seven people that is the foundation of that business. And not only looking at the skill sets, but looking at the personality types to make sure they counterbalance each other. You know, the, 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 the debate de bono principles of the seven hats you may have heard of, too. You can have someone that's yeah. going to be a black hat, the skeptic. Usually yeah. that's yeah. Your, yeah. your fractional CFO, that's, yeah, that's yeah. throwing mud balls at every idea and, and doing the worst case analysis because us entrepreneurs tend to be pathological optimists we almost have to be to take those chances yeah. Yeah. right and so we see things 5 years out 10 years out 20 years out but guess what you know you got to get from A to B in that first year and that second year so you need that more detailed operations and execution plan and um, validating your product we touched on with your customer is so important don't be afraid to show the product the prototype the description buy them lunch pick their brain make sure you understand now there's a dichotomy there that needs to be mentioned and there are two very famous quotes that represent this dichotomy um you know Henry Ford said if I had asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? A lot of people have heard that one. This does not work in disruptive businesses because the customer isn't a visionary that can see the future. They're looking at the day-to-day and the short term, and it's the entrepreneur's job to be looking at the 5-year to 20-year long term Mm -hmm. to build a company of value. You know, it takes... Five or 10 years to build something that, you know, I use the metaphor of a skyscraper versus a tiny house, right? Anyone can build a tiny house alone, but team is all that matters if you're going to build a skyscraper or a big business. So you need people that are 20 years experience or at least 15 years experience each in those five key disciplines at the table. Doesn't mean they need to be full-time employees early on because you don't have Mm -hmm. the budget for that, But you need a a person that can wear the VP of marketing hat. You need a person that can wear the VP of operations hat, the VP of Product development, you know, and the CEO might wear a couple of those hats if they have the kind of experience I do, because everyone became an expert in something probably before they became a CEO. So I would always oversee product development because that's one of my superpowers is, you know, matching the, the product market fit and understanding the technology so I think we've hit on five of the most common reasons companies fail. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's always the excuse, and this shows up in that study that had 20 of them. I boiled it down to, I forget the number, but people can see it in the ebook book that those five were really only about seven or eight because running out of money isn't a problem. It's a symptom of one of the other things not working. Right. right. If your product and yeah. your positioning and your team were good, and if you had effectively spent your sweat equity and a little bit of seed capital from the founders to build your prototype, you would have raised money. And it's tough to raise money. You you know, one in four hundred plans that go across a venture capitalist desk will actually be funded. And and so you've got to be in the top you know, one percent easily to expect to get funded. You know,
0: right. So this is really interesting, and it's really relevant at the time that you and I are speaking right now because it's it's always been tough to raise money, but it's tougher than ever now. The economy has changed, and it changed very rapidly, literally over the last twelve months or so. So it's tough. You talk about because you've clearly you've you've raised money multiple times in the past, and you I think you've worked out how what, what a winning pitch looks like. Can you just share some thoughts as to how you can position and pitch to investors to give you the best possible chance of capital raising?
1: Yeah. And and, and I want to push back on that a little because so many people think the pitch deck can be changed to raise money. And they're going to throw that against an audience and get feedback and change the deck. But they're not getting money because the business model is bad, not because the pitch deck is bad. You can have an ugly pitch deck. And if you got the right team and the right product and market, the right problem and need, that's a real pain for people. Another you know, famous quote is, you know, investors would rather invest in an in, in aspirin than a vitamin, right? They want the customer to have a pain that raises that, that budget item to number one or number two on the list, Because if they don't need it now, they won't buy it. So another misimpression that people have is that, you know, VC money is easy to get and they see a headline every day. But yes, I think there's been about a 20% drop in deals and a similar number in in valuations as well as funds. A lot of VC funds are, are shutting down and quietly going away because they haven't been that effective at picking winners and if they don't have that one winner in 20 that becomes a billion dollar unicorn then their the yield on their investment is not that great and their their limited partners don't continue to invest in them but <clears throat> there are at least 30 different sources of money out there beyond angels and VCs and people need to look at that mosaic and hopefully get a little along the way from many other sources. You know, there's friends and families and sometimes people that fools that invest in the, yep. in the seed round, right? But I wouldn't yep. want to invest in anything where the founders weren't putting in their own sweat equity and some of their own capital. And so that means you have to have, you know, a little money in the bank, as we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. and, and be willing mm-hmm. to not just take that the risk of your time, but to take some personal financial risk, because the difference between exiting owning 50% and exiting owning 5% is all about how much sweat equity and seed money you personally as a founder and the team were able to put in on day one. Because you see an exponential curve in that that classic hockey stick curve in revenue is also the hockey stick curve in valuation, because as the risk goes down the valuation goes up dramatically. And so if you can get friends and family money and founder sweat equity and, and some founder money, if you can build your MVP and, of course, talk to your customers, as we've said five times now, and validate it, yep. you know, your your valuation is is going to be $10 million bringing your first money in instead of $2 million bringing your first money in. And that means your team will get five times as much equity on the exit. So very important to be smart about when you raise the money and the milestones that drive up valuations. Entrepreneurs, you know, certainly they're hungry and sometimes they're desperate and they have to take the only Mm -hmm. deal on the table. And, you know, investors love that because, you know, they're going to get such a bargain and they're going to make their money on the way in, even though it's risky. But you've got to have a five-year financing strategy. And this is one of the lessons that came out of HomeView. We actually hired a consultant that worked at IBM just to advise us on the mentality of the IBM people when we were dealing with them. Um, You know, she she was an expert and had worked at, you know, corporate headquarters and really understood how IBM people think. And you know, yeah. so we knew it was a big risk that they may just stop investing in us even though we had this three tranche deal that was supposed to happen and even though we were prepared for it you know we had six weeks notice to raise 11 million dollars which you know even yeah. today would be a bit of a stretch as you might imagine you know you want to allow six months to raise money typically and as i said have a milestone strategy That when you know these milestones, which reduce risk in the business, kick in, your valuation will go up. And brag about that to your potential investors. As soon as we do this, we expect our valuation to double or triple, and and that's going to take our current dollar price to $2 or $3. They want to understand you have that long-term perspective and that you're in the same boat and understand how you're going to drive the stock up and the risk down.
0: Yes. So, so what I take from that is and there's a lot of talk about, you know, your ideal pitch deck and it's, it's, it's 12 slides. It says, And what you're saying is it doesn't really matter. Yes, of course, you want to have a professional looking deck. You want to be able to articulate. But the most important thing is what, is what is your offer? What are you doing? What change will you find in the world? What pain will you solve and for whom? And be able to articulate that. And I guess after that, Bob you're selling your investors a story, aren't you? You're selling them a vision of a future that they are now allowed to participate in and benefit and and, um, and have the rewards from along the way. So it comes down to that compelling narrative. And I think everything goes back. The more I speak to you, the more I recognize the importance of the vision pie and articulating the vision on what the future will look like. And then beyond that, of course, people will invest but if you're if you're if you're convincing enough in, in sharing that story.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, number one, two, and three is team. Number four is is your business model solving a big problem. And a part of that is will you have barriers to entry around the business once you're established? There's another famous saying that well should be more famous, and that is whether a startup wins depends on whether. The old guard, if you're in a disruptive launch, gets distribution. uh, I'm sorry, before you as a startup gets distribution, before they get innovation. Because everyone's going to copy you once you're successful, right? And so you have a limited window, maybe a year, maybe three years, maybe five years if you're lucky, to really establish a big beachhead in one or more markets. You might, you know, be in one vertical or many niches. A portfolio of niche strategy is what we had at Thomson Reuters, where every product had its own niche and there was some cross-selling, but each product we launched had a different target market and solved a different problem. So the problem has to be a big pain. Um, You know, after that, things change. And the reason the team is number one, two, and three is because a good team will pivot and will learn and will make the changes. And as long as there's a, a core market need to solve that problem, your odds of success go up massively. And I'm not saying that all underst- all investors understand that. Uh, as I said, you know the, the neuroplasticity and the model in your yeah. head of how this business works Year one, year two, year five needs to be flushed out in your brain and have built-in plan Bs and plan Cs that if this particular niche doesn't work, then here's niche number two.
0: Amazing. Now, Bob, as we the, the, the time has flown, i have sort of keep my eye we're, we're sort of hitting towards the, the, the magical hour mark. And I do. There's another couple of points I do want to explore with you before we wrap up for today. But honestly, we could we could have easily carried on for another hour or two, and perhaps we'll have a uh, we'll have a version we'll we'll have a version two in the future. That'd be great. But before we do begin to halfway
1: through my career yet, Alan.
0: Well, exactly, exactly. So we, we've got to we've got to have a part two, I'm sure. But bearing in mind, so so the the audience uh, here of this podcast is, is business owners, aspiring entrepreneurs. I think we've hit a lot of the at least the sort of the the, the big aspects about about team and about vision and about and also sort of capital raising. But it, it just thinking, are, are there any other sort of big areas, the things we should just spend a couple of moments on see for that audience, things to. To, to, to do or things to avoid doing in order to maximize the chances of business success?
1: Well, I think we've hit a good 10 of those points. And right. the ebook on the top 20 reasons for failure will go into some detail and provide a better list than I can off right. the top of my yeah. head. I mean, we've certainly hit the top 10 already. Um, <clears throat> beyond that, it's well, a bit, you know, personality- Characteristics might be worth talking about. You got to have grit. You got to know when to listen to people and when to ignore what they say completely because you're a disruptive business and they can't see your future, right? So Mm -hmm. you both have to be coachable and listening to everybody, but you got to have a filter that says, well, he doesn't understand this part of the vision logically and where the world is going to be three years down the 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 pike and so lots of people aren't gonna get it but you can't use that excuse to not listen to people you have to be coachable and listen to everybody and take that input and you better have a darn good reason to say the reason I'm not gonna listen to that and adjust based on that feedback now is I understand X Y and Z more deeply than that person. And if that person is an expert in the area, they may be stuck in cognitive dissonance of this is how it's always been. So like I said, if it's a disruptive business model, you're gonna hear a lot of that pushback, right? Um, If it's an incremental improvement, which may be harder to get funded and harder to build barriers to entry around, um, you know, you're, you're going to need to take in a lot of that feedback as input into how you navigate your course. Um, and I would never do a pitch deck without showing three or four additional markets in a, a one-page sample graph of how we will expand over time, because those future markets are also your pivot markets,
0: Bob, you very kindly agreed to share with our audience some uh, materials. Uh, to, 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 if if you would mind, you do, do a far better job than I ever would at explaining exactly what we're going to be sharing.
1: Yes. Yeah, there's a book called The Top Eight Reasons That Companies Fail to Raise Funds, which goes into some, you know, we've touched on a couple of those things, but it goes much deeper yeah. in terms of those top failure uh, reasons, you know, because, because of frankly misbeliefs about the capital markets. So that's ebook number one that the, the audience can download. Ebook number two is the top 20 reasons companies fail based on that research. And, you know, just understanding those is half the battle to say, what am I doing to avoid that one? And use it as a checklist. And you might not be able to check everything off, but you've got to plan to check all those things off, you know, in the first year or the first two years. Obviously, you can't have a great team on day one. That's a long slog and a hard build. And founders typically have to use equity to attract people. And, and the reason they do that is because they're cash poor, but it's also a filter on how committed these people are. Because if they're trying to get, you know, a seven or eight figure hit in their personal net worth, they, they should be willing to take a slightly lower salary. I'm not saying, you know, spaghetti diet salary, but a, a very aggressive lower salary for the trade-off of all of that upside. Think about it. If they're not willing to make that bet, they're probably not the right person, both psychologically yeah. to stick with it over time because they have too much risk aversion. And so that's a filter on people to make sure they're a really committed part of the team with that grit and determination to, you know, to, you know, blow up the wall or go under it or go around it and, and really stick to the yeah. plan, you know. And of course, yeah. the leader yeah. and having that vision and I think integrity and trust and openness and creating a win-win for every employee in a culture, I call the perfect culture, a Darwinian meritocracy. Be- Darwinian <laughs> because it evolves as the company grows and the markets and the world changes on the outside, and a meritocracy because you want to flush out politics. As companies get bigger and bureaucratic, enormous amounts of energy going goes to siloing information and protecting my job and looking better. You know, you really need total honesty in the boardroom, in the executive suite, and, and frankly, in any management meeting. The Speed of Trust is a great book by uh, Stephen Covey's son. Is it Stephen as well? Uh, you know, on yeah, how things yeah. get done faster and better when a team trusts each other. Um, I'm also going to offer two videos. One is how to raise millions for any company that will go deep, and and my my videos are like three times as much information per hour, you know, as the typical video, and it's not all advertisement. So you you know, in an hour video, you'll get three hours worth of content, very valuable on really understanding how to raise capital. Uh, and then I've got another one, which is for more advanced companies that have a product market fit and are ready to scale. The top ten challenges of scaling a company, because as we talked about a little bit before, only one in 400 companies will reach 10 million and one in 6,300 will reach um, uh, 100 million. And so I'm either the luckiest guy in the world or I figured this out, right? Because you can't do one, one in 6,300 twice in a row, you know, with, yeah. without some, you know, some success and understanding of the problem. So those are the four things we're going to put up in addition to the visual of the vision pie i actually have an 11 page article and we can provide a link to that, that that really goes into that concept of do you really understand a vision to the level that's necessary um but get a coach get a mentor those are other reasons that, that companies feel in that list mm-hmm. of 20 that's coming to me now you got to have some gray mm-hmm. hair on the team as well you know most of these things are timeless You know, the younger generation wants to think that, you know, us baby boomers, you know, are out of touch. Well, guess what? Pretty much everything I teach is never going to change. Literally never. Yes, there's more Internet marketing and there's more social media as part of the marketing mix. But since I did my very first CEO boot camp in 2004, that's the only thing that's changed. There isn't a single thing I said in that training that isn't 100 percent true today as well.
0: Absolutely right. Some of these things, as our friend Mr. Bezos says, they're timeless, aren't they? And they're never, they're never going to change, some of the principles. And as you say, having a, a few gray hairs or someone who's got a bit more miles on the clock to share with the next generation coming through, which again is the premise of this podcast, but all about sharing. I mean, I, I'm just very proud to be, like you, part of this sort of band of brothers and sisters of entrepreneurs who've taken this this crazy leap to create something out of nothing. But it is treacherous, you know. There's so much, so many things that can go wrong on the journey. So, the value that you've you've already brought uh, to my audience, and and that we we will share in the future, and share with the various uh, downloads and books and videos, absolutely wonderful. And I'm really, really grateful to you, Bob, for sharing that. You're you're a, you're a great source of inspiration to others. But have you had it? what are the, what are your sources of inspiration? I mean, you you have mentioned a couple of books already. What are, what are the sort of two or three books that any entrepreneur really should absolutely read and probably read more than once that are going to help them on the journey, apart from, of course, your, your own books? Yeah,
1: I've got a list of top 10. Um, Jim Collins and Good to Great, as well as Built to Last, great books. Um, we mentioned Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favorite authors, and understanding really how the mind works and how the path of learning works. That's a model that you can use every day in hiring and training and developing your culture. Um, other top books, Clayton Christensen, um, you know, as a, as a strategist, um, Crossing the Chasm by Joffrey Moore, great book. Um, I'm actually working on a series of the top 50 books. I'm going to do a three to five minute video summarizing every one of them. I mean, one of my claims to fame is I've read a 1,000 books on business over this 30-year career as a CEO, and I probably wish that was 250 of the best ones, but you can't know that. And everything I've integrated into my own company and airtight management to help companies scale sort of comes from hundreds of different business gurus and authors and experts, and you know, we can certainly provide a link, to to my top 10 or 20 recommendations. Um, Peter Drucker, uh, the daily Drucker. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, uh, no excuses management, I like. That's about the model of starting with the end in mind and working backwards on the economics. What price do you want to exit your company at in 10 years? Yeah. Now work yeah. that backwards financially. That's a great way to think and to make sure you build a real simulation of the business that's driven by the factors that you can control as opposed to the ones that are that are totally out of your control. Um, many, many others that, that don't come to mind immediately, but we'll try to uh, post a link to some of those. I, I'm, a, I'm a real big yeah. believer in constant learning and constant reading. Peter Senjay, um, what's the name of his book, The Learning Organization, I believe it is.
0: Okay, well, wonderful. Thanks for that. I, you know, that, that's one thing that seems to be a recurring theme. In, anyone I speak to on this podcast and just other people I know and associate with, co- uh, uh, c- continually learning, always hungry for more information, never satisfied with what they know. It seems to be uh, yeah, a, co- a common theme out of those who, who achieve a certain degree of success. Yeah, a, you know, you've so you've got to th- have
1: intellectual curiosity and you've got to be a lifelong yeah. learner. I, I, you yeah. know, like grit, and, and perseverance, I don't think that's an optional characteristic for an entrepreneur. Yeah. And and we're driving all the new jobs and, and when you think about it, entrepreneurship is the only way we increase the lifestyle of human beings on the planet. So being an entrepreneur is a very noble thing and you know having that eighty five percent failure rate is is unacceptable to me. I I think it should be fifty percent or less If people prepared enough, I mean, I spent five years as a manager, and I would recommend that to everyone before you go out and file a business, because if you don't know management and leadership and marketing strategy and, you know, something about product development, you know, when you become a CEO, you're suddenly managing everything across all those multiple disciplines. And that's why you need a strong team, which is a catch-22, because you don't have the budget. For a small team as a startup.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know you, as, as we said earlier on, it is um, the odds are stacked against you as a, as a startup business owner. You're certainly doing your bit to help improve those odds with all the, the materials that you are, are sharing and, and the courses that you're doing. Um, just as we wrap up, there's a, I'm going to throw a, a curveball at you. Uh, something that I do ask a lot of the people who come on this podcast. And as someone who's obviously achieved a high degree of success professionally and, 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 and certainly financially and otherwise, um, I'm really intrigued as to what your definition of true wealth is. How would you define true wealth? Is it more than money? Yeah,
1: well, I have a couple of ways of thinking at that. One is the freedom to do what you want and what you love. And financially, that means enough money in the bank to ignore doing things you don't love. Uh, you know, hopefully enough that the yield on those investments is enough for you to support your lifestyle and you don't have the, the pressures, you know, in the, you may know the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You can yeah. serve others only after, you know, your foundation and, you know, you have paid for your kids' college education or whatever your goals are in life. And that has been set aside. And, you know, you're not going to have a home run probably in your first startup, but the learning experience is going to prepare you. So, you know, hopefully you have a double and then you have a triple and then you have a home run because the cumulative experience is making every venture you do more likely to succeed.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something I completely agree with. This true wealth is really freedom, isn't it? It's freedom of you know what you do, who you spend your time with, where you spend your time with. But in order to do that, you do have to achieve. There's no getting away from it. Creating your own economic security allows you to make those those choices. So it's uh, and it, and hopefully you're learning a lot, and it's and it's a bit of fun along yeah, the way. I mean, as well. Everyone,
1: you know, from Oprah to Richard Branson, will tell you, you know, it's it's passion. I think what that really yeah. means is you love what you're doing, because if you love what you're doing, you're not going to mind doing it and thinking about it with your shower time and working 60 yeah. hours a week because you're enjoying the challenge and you know, you're know you not going to walk away in hard times. And that's a big test of professional, professional venture capitalists. Do they have their friends and family money in the business so they can't walk away when things get hard? Things are going to get hard. Every startup is a roller coaster ride, yeah. right? It's never smooth. Yeah. Yeah. You may have seen that picture where, you know, here's what you think success looks like, a straight yeah. line. But then they have this real squiggly thing going up and down over the valleys and, you know, over the walls and yeah. everything else. And that's much closer to reality.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I know I know the picture. There's, there's a couple of versions of that that I've seen. And look, I, I've done 30 odd episodes of this podcast, and not one conversation have I had. Did things work out as the founder anticipated them to work out? It just comes with the territory. There'll be issues, there'll be challenges, there'll be things that you didn't expect. So, resilience and grit and fortitude that just yeah, if you haven't got that, then I wouldn't bother even starting Absolutely. in the first place. So, so wise words. Bob, as we're just wrapping up now, if uh, it's been really super interesting, we, we've you know we could have th- we done um, another hour easily, and I'd like to invite you back again for a future, you know, version two, version three, on this, and we be, as we can sort of begin to unpack and go into detail in some of these key important subjects. But in the meantime, if people want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you do, um, what's the best way of contacting? Um,
1: well, I have many websites, but airtightgrowth.com is for companies that uh, are, are have revenue flowing and EntrepreneurshipU.com is my site for earlier stage companies and startups with all of our training which includes the CEO Bootcamp, six professional certifications in management, marketing strategy, um, overall strategy and, and other things and there's 40 courses there And and all of those websites, of course, have ways to reach out and contact us.
0: Uh, Perfect. And you're on LinkedIn as well. So I'm going to make sure we post links to all these websites, contact details. And of course, and thank you very much again, the resources that you've kindly agreed to provide for our our audience in terms of the books and videos. So for now, all the way from Texas, USA, Mr. Bob Norton, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast. Thank
1: you, Alan. It was a ball and I hope uh, we've saved some entrepreneurs in the future by what we've done today.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for making it this far. I hope you found this episode to be helpful. If so, I'd like to ask you for a small favor. Can you please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review? Because that's one of the best ways for others to find it. And please send a link to the podcast to three friends or colleagues who you know will find it helpful. That way we can spread the word and everyone can benefit. Thanks again for tuning in and being part of our community. I'll see you next time.